Open it up to Luke chapter 1. And tonight we are going to be looking, uh, kind of jumping into our, our Luke series that we're going to be in for a little while. And um, I take it back, actually, uh, next week we're not going to be in Luke. We're going to stop for a second just because it's Thanksgiving and kind of go in a little bit different direction, probably. You know, we'll see what happens. But, um, but um, anyway, for tonight, Luke 1. I know that seems weird, right? You start a new series and you're like, we're start wait, hit the, pump the brakes just a little bit. We're going to do something, but we'll get back to it in just a second. Luke chapter 1, um, looking at verse 5 through 25. So it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of the, these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, again. Father God, as we enter into uh, this holiday season uh, that, that we recognize and celebrate here in the United States, God, we recognize that it is a time um, that is often uniquely used uh, by you in the course of the year to draw people to yourself. Um, God, that people will be more likely to um, be in church in the next uh, six weeks, um, that they will be more likely to be around um, possibly friends and family members who are uh, followers of Jesus Christ and who have uh, believed the gospel, um, opportunities to hear the gospel uh, shared and, and uh, hear the story of Jesus Christ, of his coming into the world. Uh, and what he has done for us, God. We just ask that um, you would use this in the churches in Blount County, 
um, God, that you would specially bless um, and that as every church in Blount County that is a gospel-speaking church, um, is, a, is a church that, that focuses on your word and on um, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, that you would use uh, this season, uh, this time of the year, uh, to uniquely draw people to yourself, God, that you would do that in our own congregation, that uh, we would invite, um, that we would, as we spoke a few weeks ago, that we would boldly um, speak and invite uh, people to uh, not only to church, but God into our lives, into our homes, uh, where we can form relationships and uh, serve and share, um, and in particular, tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, God, let that be what this season is about. Um, God, yes, the giving of gifts, uh, but primarily uh, the giving of the greatest gift, and that is um, the message of the gospel to those around us. Um, in boldness to that end, God, go before us and prepare hearts, um, as you have always done. Uh, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so we were we were watching some movies the other night. My kids had never seen the movie Ben Hur, and Ben Hur is one of my favorites um, from from all of time. Um, it uh, it's got a great uh, sort of Christian message that runs through it, although it's not exactly an explicitly Christian movie, but in many ways it is. But anyway, there's this thing that happens at the very beginning of the movie. There's this overture that happens. There's this big piece of music that gets played at the very beginning of the movie. And the kids were like, what's, what is this? Like, why, why won't the movie start? Why is there this big piece of music that is being played at the beginning? And so if you're, if you haven't seen a movie from, from say the sixties or before in a while, then you may not have, uh, uh, thought about an overture, okay? But there's uh, in, in not only movies, but in ballet and, and orchestra and, 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 uh, uh, plays and things like that. Sometimes there's this thing at the beginning called an overture, right? And it's this long extended piece of music that usually what it does is it sort of hits on, uh, different pieces of music that will be played throughout the entire movie, right? And so if you're listening to, to a, to a musical or something and there's, you know, 10 different songs, oftentimes the overture will play just a little snippet of each one of those songs. And the point of it is almost to orient you, right? It is to make you recognize and give you some of the themes and the ideas that are going to be carried through the entire, um, play or, or musical or movie or whatever. A lot of people talk about, um, a lot of commentators talk about the first two chapters of Luke as the overture for the entire book of Luke, okay? And so what happens is, is we find in these first couple sections that, that Luke is sort of orienting us to um, the situation of, of not only the context of the book, but some of the themes that are going to go forward in the book as we go. And so we're going to see that, especially in tonight's uh, message, except the way he's going to orient us is not really so much looking forward, but he's going to be orienting us looking backwards. And we see some of these happenings in these first couple of stories, and you'll notice, probably if you've read ahead or if you remember from your previous reading in, in the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke starts out telling us about two miraculous births. First, the birth of John, and then the birth of Jesus. And so all uh, the, the context that goes out from there, we learn a lot of things and we start to understand the themes that are going to be developed um, throughout the book of Luke in those things. But let's kind of like, kind of dig in and see the kind of thing that I'm talking about, starting there in verse 5. So again, it starts off this way. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both 
we're advanced in years. Okay, so as as a church that has you know as as Christians in in the year 2019, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, if you grew up in the church, or really just are kind of aware of of church history, it comes as no surprise that. Christianity is is a uh, a fulfillment of Judaism, right? Okay, that's that's not a surprise to us. We understand that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? Even though there are voices in our culture that are sort of speaking against the church's connection to the Old Testament things, but but that's that's a normal idea for us. But recognize the fact that if you were a first century person and someone showed up in your town in in Greece somewhere and started telling you about Jesus the Savior, um, who had died on a cross for the, for the sins of the world, um, it, you. You would maybe be in a situation where you say, man, I, how, what is this? Is this some kind of brand new religion that has popped up? Is this some sort of cultic thing? Is, is this a new revelation? Like, what's going on? How am I supposed to understand the larger context of what I'm being told here? All right? And so Luke starts off doing that. All right? So think about this. If, if you were completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament or even the scriptures, and some of us may be relatively new to the faith, and so we haven't had a lot of experience reading the Old Testament, Think about as you read that section, just those three verses, five through seven, how many words would pop up and concepts would pop up that you would go, I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay? Um, so Herod, king of Judea, um, this priest whose name is Zechariah, the division of Abijah. Uh, what is that? Probably for some of us who are, know the scriptures, we don't even know what that is, right? Um, who is this guy Aaron? Who are the daughters of Aaron? What does it mean to be righteous before um, God and blameless? These commands and statutes, it's all very Hebrew-y, okay, right? It's all very, um, the whole section makes us go, Luke is pointing us back to the, to the Jewish faith, right? To the, to the nation of Israel and saying, the story that I'm about to tell you, right? Uh, this old, old story, the story of all stories, it is rooted in the history of Israel. It is coming out of the history of Israel. If you don't understand Israel, you're going to have a hard time um, understanding what I'm going to be talking about. And yet, just like we talked about last week, he is also showing us how this faith is not just for Israel anymore, right? It is for the Gentiles. It is for the nations, for the entire world. But you have to understand that it is oriented, that it is attached to the faith of uh, faith of the Jews. It's interesting. I read this, and, and obviously I'm not good enough in, in my Greek to even begin to touch on this, but, but, but commentators have noticed the fact that even the language, so, so Luke was written in Greek originally, even the Greek that it is written in sounds like the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay? And so even a Greek person who was familiar with the Septuagint would go, this sounds Hebrew-y, right? Like the whole thing has a Jewish, um, uh, Israelite kind of feel to it. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's pointing us backwards to the nation of Israel. But he's not just doing it with his wording, right? He's doing it with the storytelling as well. Okay, the events that are happening, right? The story of righteous followers of God who are struggling with barrenness. Okay, immediately that story makes us think of all the times in the Old Testament where that is the case. And so we can think of any number of significant characters, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and Elkanah, like all these different very significant characters from the Old Testament who all deal with the same thing. They are, they are followers of God. They are righteous in God's sight. And yet, um, they live through, uh, the hope, 
um, and also the disappointment and the tension there of being barren, of not being able to have children. And so I think the case is, is this. Again, Luke is orienting us not only to the history, not only to the themes, right? But he's sort of in this story giving us a picture of what is going on in the heart of Israel, in the heart of the world in some ways in this place. So I think the case is this. There's no better analogy for what is going on in Israel and what is going on in terms of their waiting than that delicate balance between hope and despair when it comes to infertility. Okay, and so this is what I want you to think part of in in God's providence. The reason why the events happen this way is because God is giving us a picture of not only this little family, but he's giving us a picture of the entire world in a sense. Okay, that there is this these two people who who know God and, and who are followers of God. And yet they are struggling with infertility is what we would call it today. Right. Um. Something you notice when you read the infertility stories, the barrenness stories of the Old Testament, right? Oftentimes, there's this hope. Sometimes there's even a promise. But many times, it's almost too much to hope for, right? We all know the stories where they just didn't hope long enough. And then they tried to take matters into their own hands and something else happened, like in the Abraham and Sarah story, right? You want something so much, and yet there's a point where you go... Man, I, I just can't hope anymore. I can't put any more energy into, into wanting God to do something in my life. Infertility is like that, okay? Christy and I dealt with, with secondary infertility. That's, that's when you have had children, but then all of a sudden now you're incapable of having them after the fact, okay? And so it's a different deal than what's called primary infertility, right? The emotions are different because we already have children. Um, so I'm not, I'm not equating them exactly, but there's, there's still this thing that happened where Christy and I wanted to have more children. And we said, we're going to try to, and yet we can't. Um, God is not allowing it. Our bodies are not allowing it. Something is wrong. And so we start to hope and we say, no, we're going to pray about it, and God's going to do something about it. And we talk to doctors, and we go through this years-long process. And then something happened. And I can attest to this in my own life. At some point, I just kind of said, you know what, I, I give up, right? We don't have to have another kid. Um, I would love to, but I'm not going to hope any longer. We're just going to move forward in our life with the way things are. Okay, you see that, I think, throughout the scriptures in these infertility narratives. But it's it's a it's a bigger picture about even the nation of Israel in many ways. It's easier to move on sometimes than it is to keep on hoping, hoping. Um, And I think that is a picture of what's going on here, because remember where we're at in church uh, biblical history. Okay, so is Luke is writing the story of what is happening right after what is called the intertestamental period. Okay. And so what the intertestamental time is, is this, when the old Testament ends in Malachi, the last revelation that God gives to us, there is a roughly 400 year gap before God speaks to his people again in a, uh, extraordinary way, right? Um, 400 years go by where the nation of Israel is not, God is not speaking to them directly the way he has through the prophets. Okay. 400 years. Now, now again, right when I say that, what do you start going? 
400 years and God has been silent. Does that remind us of anything? Does that sound like any other story that we've ever heard? And we immediately go, this is just like uh, when the Jews were in captivity in, in Egypt, right? And God was silent for 400 years, and the people cried out to God saying, when are you going to come? When are you going to save us? When are you going to redeem your people Israel? And God was silent for 400 years until finally it was the appointed time. And God said, now is the time that I am going to move and keep my promises to Israel. And so it can't be a coincidence, right? Like I don't think... I don't, I think the reality that there was a 400 year gap between the last time God spoke and then the beginning of the New Testament is not a coincidence. If you remember, and you may not be super familiar with kind of, uh, Jewish history or whatever, so, uh, the Israelites are taken into captivity in Babylon, and they're there for about 70 or 80 years, and they have the opportunity because Babylon falls and, uh, Syria, uh, the Persians take Control And the Persians allow the Jews to go back to their homeland, go back to Israel, go back and rebuild the temple and stuff. Um, that's the, the Bible ends on that note, the Old Testament, right? So we see the Jews going back and, and um, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem, and that's where we end. What we don't, what you didn't know if you, if you just read the Bible, is that within about 50 years, a dude named Alexander the Great comes in, right? And he conquers not only um, Israel and, and that area, but he conquers all the way across to India and all the way down into Egypt. And so, again... Israel is in captivity. They are not their own masters, right? Um, they, they don't have a nation of their own. And then for the next 400 years, it just passes hands, right? Alexander the Great dies, and it ends up in somebody else's hands. And then somebody else's, and Syria invades, and the Seleucids, and the, all these different dynasties. And t- the Egyptians come and retake it. And there's these different things happen until about 60, somewhere in there, I've got a number here, so 63 B.C., the Romans come and conquer Jerusalem. Um, and now they're the bosses, right? And so now Israel has been in captivity, again, for 400 years in general, but specifically 63 years under the rule of the Romans, right? And so those, these ideas are connected because what you realize is you have these parents who are longing for a child and you have a nation that is longing for deliverance, right? And then re- in reality, a world that is longing for a savior, okay? And so it's almost like the themes are stacked on top of each other, and we're meant to see these connections. All that to say, it's like that overture idea, right? It's like what's called an establishing shot in movies. Have you ever heard that phrase, an establishing shot? So a lot of times at the beginning of a movie, you'll see something, and it'll be like the main character standing on a, in the New York skyline or something, right? And, and that's meant to go, okay, here's what's going on. Here's this young, good-looking dude in the big city. That's the context of the rest of this movie, okay? Or, you know, it'll be any kind of deal where it sort of places the character and you understand that the world they live in just by looking at a snapshot, okay? That's what's going on here. Like, Luke is giving us all these images from the Old Testament, these storylines, these themes from the Old Testament, and saying not only does this connect us to Israel, but it also shows us the themes that are going on, what's really at stake here, and what we're going to learn through this process. This is a Jewish story, okay? Um, in fact, it's almost, when you read it, it's almost archetypal, right? These characters, um, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they feel like characters that we've read a dozen stories about throughout the Old Testament. And yet, 
this story is, is an old story, right? It's, it's not a new story completely. It's connected to an old story, but it's a new beginning in that story. Something, a new act is taking place. Something is about to happen that will change the story um, forever, all right? And so anyway, so then, um, so Zechariah um, is, it says, we, we find out that he's uh, part of this uh, division of Abijah. He's a priest, um, and so he comes during his appointed time um, to Jerusalem to, to worship and minister there at the temple. And so it t- tells us in verse 8, Now while he was serving as a priest before God and when his division was on duty, according to the customs of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, and so so here's here's the deal, and this is like a quick kind of uh, overview of how that works. So if you go back to First Chronicles chapter 24, David organized the priesthood into 24 divisions, and essentially what would happen is each one of those divisions was responsible for the temple ceremony two weeks out of the year. Right, it makes about sense. Twelve months, um, uh, so that's 24 two week periods or whatever. Right, so each division who are from the lineage of Aaron, um, come in and they do the services two weeks out of the year, okay? Now, this this custom of burning incense happened twice a day. You would have a morning time of prayer and you'd have an evening time of prayer, and they would offer incense before the Lord, okay? Each division had about 750 people in it, okay? So let me just, like, real quickly, you don't have to do the math, okay? What that basically means is if you've got two offerings of incense every day and and your group is only there for two weeks a year, and you've got 750 people, then basically what it means is this. On average, now he says they did it by lot, so that means there was a randomness to the process, right, or at least a a providential piece to the process. But that means it would take somewhere in the range of 23 years for everybody to get to go, right? For everybody to get a chance to offer incense before the Lord, it would take 23 years for your whole cohort to, to get to have it happen, okay? What that means is this. The significance of this is this. Zechariah, odds are, will never get to do this ever again. This is his one time, right? This is sort of like the highlight of his entire career as a priest. This will be the one time he gets to go in and offer incense before the Lord. And what that looked like was, if you've ever seen a picture in like your study Bible of the, of the temple of God, there's the outside of the temple, and then you enter into the temple, and that's called the holy place. And then there's the curtain with the, the Ark of the Covenant behind it, and that was the holy of holies, right? Well, this one dude comes into the holy place by himself and offers incense there at the incense altar, right? So all the other people are outside. He is getting to do this, this super important, super kind of... Uh, 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 set apart role this one time. And the one time he goes in, all of a sudden this thing happens. Okay. And an angel of the Lord appears to him. And so it says in verse 13, but the angel, an angel, uh, actually back in verse 11, uh, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Typical response to angels, right? People don't see angels and go, Oh yeah, you're so nice. You know, they're so pretty, like they're terrified of them, okay? Um, he's terrified of it, too, and doesn't know what this means. And so, verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, which is usually what they say after you're afraid of them, okay? Um, again, pointing back to all these stories, right? We've heard these kind of things before if we know our Old Testament. 
Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Okay, cool. You're going to have a kid. That could be the end of this thing. It's a blessing to you, and we could be in, but it, but it keeps on going. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, right? So in, in so now we've got all these things, and you go, man, this is a big deal, right? This guy, John, who's going to show up is, is something important, right? 400 years of silence. God has said nothing to us in 400 years. And now all of a sudden, we're going to have a new prophet, it looks like. A prophet in keeping with all the prophets of the Old Testament, which, we, again, we haven't seen in 400 years. And, in fact, what we're going to find is he's not just any prophet. He is actually functionally the last prophet. Um, he is the last prophet of the Old Testament era. He is the last prophet who God will ever send. There's still gifts of prophecy. Prophecy kind of changes in the New Testament. But we never again see prophets like the Old Testament prophets were, okay? Um, and so, so John is actually going to end up being the last prophet. We're going to find out later in Luke that he's not only the last prophet, he's the greatest prophet. Um, in fact, in some ways, the greatest person um, other than Jesus Christ himself who has, who has ever lived in certain ways, okay? But unique things about this prophet who's coming, the Holy Spirit is going to fill him from birth, okay, from the time he's in his mother's womb. That's uncommon, Okay. Usually what we see in the scriptures in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit shows up and fills somebody at a certain point in their life. Maybe not even perpetually, right? Like they come in and they fill them and they do something for a while and then the Spirit departs. So, for example, we saw that in Saul, King Saul. Saul had the Spirit, was indwelt by the Spirit of God at a time, prophesied, did all these crazy things. But then later on, the Spirit departs from him and he, and he ends up turning against God and, and falling away. And so it's unique, the fact that this child who will be born will be filled with the Spirit even when he is an infant, right? And we're going to see the effects of that in the next story when, when Elizabeth is pregnant and Mary shows up. And it is, is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, infant developing baby John already can recognize Jesus in utero, right? And so you go, how, is, how are these things possible? And the answer is because the Spirit is present, um, because the Holy Spirit is working in John and obviously working in Jesus. But here's the cool thing about this passage. And again, it's, it's all, all connected to thematic stuff, okay? Um, Luke is picking up where the Old Testament left off, kind of like we've said. But he is specifically and obviously picking up where the New Testament, where the Old Testament left off. If you got your Bible, real quick, turn over to Malachi. Just real quick. Keep your finger in Luke, but then, but then turn over to Malachi real quick, to Malachi chapter 4. This is the last chapter of the Old Testament, right? Malachi chapter 4. And look at verse 4. So literally, we are in the last three verses of the Old Testament. And what does it say in Malachi 4? Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord come, uh, the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay? That's the exact wording that we just witnessed in the Gospel of Luke, of the prophecy of, of, of the coming of John, right? What is John going to be? So number one, he has these two parents who follow the law of the Lord, who are committed to um, the commands and the statutes of the Lord, right? W- which we see in that Malachi passage. And then we have this idea of a prophet coming and keeping with Elijah, right? A prophet like Elijah, that has power like Elijah and proclamation like Elijah. A new prophet is coming, but he's like Elijah to the extent that Many people believed that it was going to be some sort of reincarnation kind of deal, even though the Jews don't really believe in reincarnation, right? But that, that Elijah was actually going to come back to life somehow and minister, right? And then that, that specific line of the idea of turning the hearts of fathers to their children, right? The exact wording is there. And so what is that pointing to? Well, it seems pretty obvious is that God is basically saying, I left off in Malachi, the last few verses, and now we're picking up 400 years later. Um, what I am doing is I'm fulfilling the promises that I've made to my people. And so, again, it reminds us this situation of, of infertility as, a, as, a, as, as an example and an emotional context for all of this stuff. God is a God of covenants. He is a God of promises. And God is going to keep his promises. He's not on your timeline. And so sometimes you are going to wait generate years, generations, centuries for God to do what he's going to do. Okay? But God is going to keep his promises. So much so that as the Old Testament ends, 400 years later, God picks up right where he left off. You remember that story I told you a few uh, back during Reformation Day about Calvin getting kicked out of his pulpit and he's preaching through Deuteronomy or something like that. And, and he came to a verse and he preached on this verse and they fired him and he left for about six years. And then they realized they'd made a mistake because he was John Calvin. And so they were like, please come back and, and preach again. And so he came back and you would have expected him to get up in the pulpit and say, you guys were dumb and I'm back and you shouldn't have fired me in the first place. He didn't do that. He didn't say a word. He just opened his Bible and started preaching from the next verse in Deuteronomy where he had dropped off six or eight years before, right? God functionally does the same things. He says, uh, previously on the Old Testament, right? Um, uh, I was, I was, we were just talking about these things. It's been 400 years for you guys, but I don't count time the same way. And now, here we are in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm sending to you the Elijah who was to come. His name's going to be John, and he's going to lead people, prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Lord, okay? And so um, the idea there is this, and, that, and that these are all the themes that, God, that Luke is building into this thing. Uh, the God that we have, he is not dead, and he does not sleep, right? He is not a God who has forgotten his promises. He is not a God who is slow or late to fill his promises. God fills his promises exactly in his own time, and we can count on him to do that because he's faithful. He will do those things. The reality, though, is, and interestingly, I think, we sit within our own context that looks just like this because what have we been doing? We have literally been waiting for the return of Jesus, the return of the Messiah, for 2,000 years now. 
right? And probably, and I'm going to bet this, every single one of us, I'll bet, would, would affirm that they believe Jesus is coming back one day. Like, if I just ask you, if you're a believer and you believe the Bible, you're going to say, I believe that he's coming back one day, okay? But the reality is, is most of us, I think, have done what we, Christy and I did about having a third child, is we had basically said, yeah, but, I mean, probably not. Um, yes, I believe in the idea that Jesus is coming back, but it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It hasn't happened in anybody else's lifetime in the last 2,000 years. Yes, I understand the idea, and he's coming back, but I'm not acting like he is. I'm not living daily, waiting, ready, because there's a way in which, even though we have a hope, we are not living in that hope. And, and I don't know how else to explain it other than that, right? Um, it is not the kind of reality that we are sitting expectantly waiting for God to do these things. Um, I think that was the same case in these people's lives, right? They kind of said, you know, God said he's going to keep his promises to us, but we've been in captivity 400 years, and I don't know what's going on. And so we're just going to try to make the best of it, just try to live our lives and do what we're supposed to do and keep on moving. We're not being unfaithful. We're not rejecting God or anything like that. We're just going to sort of keep on living because it seems like God's not coming. Um, that is a theme that is just as present in, in that time as it is in this time. It's, it's present in all our lives at all times. But God, the God of the Old Testament, is a fulfilling promises kind of God, right? He is a faithful God, and he will fulfill them. And so Jesus is coming. He will return at any moment, and we must live in the hope of that. But before he comes, at least in the context of this story, before he comes the first time, he has to send this forerunner that has been prophesied, this, this herald who is to come. And so I kind of want to close out. The big idea being um, that God is faithful, and that is what Luke is pointing us to. This is a God, it's the same God we've been believing in for 400 years, right, hoping that he would do something. And now he has. He's fulfilled his promises and, and, and kept his covenants. And he has sent not only John, but, he's, but he has sent Jesus as well. But there's two more ideas that I want you to notice just in the way the rest of this story happens, okay? Um, when Zacharias told this thing, uh, he doesn't believe it, right? He has a hard time understanding how all of this is come to, going to come to, to fruition. It doesn't make sense to him, despite the fact that he's basically reading the script of the Old Testament, right? Like, how many times have we read this story in the Old Testament where somebody goes, God makes a promise, and somebody says, well, I just don't know, God. I can't see it right in front of me. And then God says, well... You're wrong, and I'm going to show you, right? Of all people, Zechariah, a priest, should know these kind of stories. Um, but, he, but somehow he doesn't. And so what does he say in verse 18? He says, well, how shall I know this? How do I know this is real? Other than the fact there's an angel standing next to me in the temple of the Lord. Like, I'm an old man. My wife's an old man. You know, I've never heard of a story. My wife is not an old man. My wife is, I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. Um, <laughs> It was the first century. They were doing weird things back then, okay? So I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. I've never heard any story in the scriptures of a really old man and a really old woman having a child. How could this possibly take place, angel? Right. And so, again, there's a little piece of it where we look at it as we often do in the scriptures and say, man, these people are idiots. Right. Like they just are, are they blind? But the truth is, is that, man, we do this stuff all the time. Like we do the exact same things in our own context. Just a real quick little little 
little tip for you. If an angel of the Lord ever shows up physically and tells you you're going to have a child, just go, cool. Like, I, yeah, I believe that. Okay, because it's going to happen, okay, um, as we have seen through Scripture, right? But again, we do the same thing. In moments of danger or tragedy or disappointment, whatever they are, we kind of throw our hands up and we say, how can this be? What are you doing, God? Are you not paying attention? Do you not care? Why have you abandoned me? I can't see how there's any way forward. Like, I just don't know. Everything's bad and, and there's no way forward. And then oftentimes, the, the tiniest little things happen and God fixes everything. And then you, and then you go, oh, yeah, of course he fixed it. I can't believe I was so faithless in this process, okay? But what it shows us is this, okay? It shows us in the life of Zachariah, and it shows us in our own life. And I'm going to steal this line from the Bidi Anyabuibale, um, who is a, I'm not even sure if I said it right, um, but, but he is a, a pastor, used to be in Cayman Islands, is now in D.C., I believe. And he said this, he says, It is possible to be a righteous person in a holy place, doing holy things, and still to not trust God. Right? And, man, we should, we should grab hold of the reality of that. It is possible to be a righteous person in a holy place doing holy things and still not trust God. Because the reality is we do that all the time. We're not talking about a guy who had rejected God, right? He's not an atheist. He's not turned to paganism. He's not, right? He is a righteous man who is following God's commandments. Doing holy things, right? Sacri- uh, offering incense in the temple. And yet in this moment of revelation, he says, it's too much. I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe that this would actually, that you would actually do this. And so then the angel answers this unbelief and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, right? That's, man, there's got to be a booming quality that would, Continue the cowering at this point, right? You would think, like he's saying, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stand next to God, bud, okay? Like I talk to him, um, we have a conversation. He sent me to say this to you, but sure, don't trust me, okay? Believe something else, okay? And because of that, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, right? God is going to make a spectacle of Zechariah to show the, um, the supernatural, miraculous nature of what he is about to do, right? It's just going to be one added element. It was already going to be something amazing, right? But now it is going to be um, a, a extra amazing, right? These events are going to take place in conjunction with the birth of John that are going to make it even more, um, draw people's attention to it even more, okay? And so that's the first thing, that we just sort of an idea to say Zechariah, uh, was unfaithful, even though he was a faithful man, right? He would not believe. He, it was too hard for him to hope, um, even in that context. But here's the second thing. God's faithfulness to us is not just about him formally keeping his promises and his covenants, okay? Um, obviously, it is about that, okay? God is a God who has made promises, and he is going to keep them. But it's not just that, right? God's faithfulness to us is out of his love and his care and his particular favor to us, And so, again, notice we're talking about God being faithful, how he keeps these cosmic promises of salvation and church history and and the way things are going to go or whatever. But the way that those promises come to fruition are through the intimate details of our lives and the way he is dealing with us as individuals, right? And so, you know, we notice what what does Elizabeth say when this whole process goes through, right? She doesn't get to the end of this whole thing and go... Thank you, God, that you have 
started talking to your people Israel again, that you are keeping your covenant with the nation, that you are bringing the promises of this Savior to come from the beginning of Genesis, that you are doing all these big grand things, cosmic Ephesians kind of things. You're finally doing them all. Thank you, God, for doing them. Is that what she says? She doesn't. She's not thinking in those terms. What terms is she thinking in? In verse 25, it says, um, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Right? What's going on in Elizabeth's life is very personal, very zoomed in. Right? She has wanted a child in that culture. She has felt shamed and as if something were wrong with her because she didn't have a child. Um, and now God is answering that prayer. Okay? Cosmically fulfilling things, but being faithful to an individual person in the intimacy and intricacy of their own lives. Okay? God's doing the same thing for us. Now, I cannot make for you the promises that you might want made. Right? I cannot promise you... Um, uh, long life. I cannot promise you children. I cannot promise you a spouse. I cannot promise you happiness. I cannot pr- pr- promise you health. Because the truth is, is God has promised you none of those things. right? He hasn't promised you that stuff. And yet we trust in this fact that God loves you, that God is faithful to you. And his faithfulness is not just a function of him keeping these big cosmic promises, but that he loves you and cares for you and wants what's best for you. And we can trust that God is going to do that in our lives. That he is going to meet us at our point of need and give us exactly what we need in the time that he has. And again, what that looks like could be lots of different things, okay? But we trust in God because he has proved himself faithful. And Luke shows us this picture of a faithful God who has not been asleep. He is not dead. He is not gone. He has not abandoned his people. He is right there with them, bringing his promises to fruition and caring about those who trust in him and who follow him. So what I want to do is, is, is as we close, we'll just go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, what I want you to do is talk to God about those things and, and talk to God about hope. Okay? Um, go before the Lord and think about the things in your life Um, both big things, cosmic things, the coming of Jesus, right? Those kind of cosmic things, right? And yet the things in your life too, that you go, God, are you going to do these things? Are you going to work in these ways? Um, should I give up in, in, in trusting in you, um, for your goodness and your faithfulness? Or should I continue to hold on knowing that whatever happens, you are going to do what is good and right and best in my life for me. Okay? And so just kind of talk to God about your own life in this, in this time. Just, just bow your head and close your eyes, and, and um, we'll just have a time of conversation with God um, and, and prayer, and then I'll close this, and, and we'll, uh, the music team will come back up and, and lead us. Father God, we do not or should not measure your faithfulness um, 
to the extent that we get what we want. Um, God, you are faithful. God, it is part of your unchanging character. You have declared it in your word. You have exhibited it um, through history. God, you are faithful. Um, That is undeniable. Um, But God, let us recognize your faithfulness in our own lives, the way that you have cared for us, the way you have met needs and given us the things that we need. Um, God, how you have been a good father to us who has provided God and even given us not just the things that we need, but even good gifts, things that are not necessary, but, but things that, that you have blessed us with just because um, you love us and want what is good for us. God, help us to trust in the fact that you know us better than we know ourselves, that you know precisely what we need, and that because of your goodness and faithfulness, you are uh, wise and trustworthy uh, to provide those things. God, in our difficulties, help us to remember that you are faithful. God, in our disappointments, help us to remember that you are faithful. God, when things um, happen that we don't want or go against our plans or our expectations, God, help us to know and remember that you are faithful, that you love us, and that you are working um, even now in our lives. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for uh, this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.